chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and it's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. Good job with all the ites, Jess. All right, let's pray together. God, we look to you as our hope, not only in understanding this word in a way that impacts our lives, uh, but our hope for life itself. And so we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see your son Jesus in this passage, and that you would address specific areas of our lives, that you would connect the dots for us. We know we're naturally resistant to that. We don't always like to be known by you, be exposed But we know it gives life, so we're asking for you to do it. Please do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of months ago, we were driving on the road in our trusty car, and then, of course, that great orange light turned on, check engine. Of course, that itself would have been a little bit frustrating. Even more frustrating was the fact that that happened almost on the way home from a visit with the mechanic. So, of course, we have to go back and talk to them about the cause of this light's going on. 
didn't happen immediately. It took a little bit of waiting. His diagnosis was a little bit fuzzy, and that's when we felt like, okay, let's try to get another opinion on what is going on here. So we go to another mechanic not too far from where we live. He has a quick diagnosis, then kind of does a double take and realizes he may not have the right answer here. And then I leave the car with him and then have to wait another day to let him do his tests and figure out what exactly is going on with the car. And then finally he comes up with something that will require taking apart the entire electrical system, not to fix it, but just to find out what the problem is, which meant not only more dollars, but of course more waiting. So we said, okay, let's get another opinion. Let's try another person that maybe might be able to nail this down. And so we go to another place up in Bethesda, Maryland, which of course is not near where we live. We said, this is going to be the answer. This is going to be definitive. So I take the car up there after a long trip, uh, drop the car off, give it to them, wait a whole day, do some work in the Barnes and Noble across the street and get the phone call. It's going to be another day just to find out what it is that's wrong with the car. Finally, we decide, okay, we're going to go for it. I come back the next day, and he says it's going to be another day to fix the part. And, but actually, what we need to do is order the part from out of town. It'll be here on Saturday. I think it was Wednesday at that time. More waiting. I said, okay, well, I guess we can wait that long. Saturday rolls around. By now, I think I'm a pretty patient person, but this is getting a little bit tough for me. Of course, at this point, I'm being a little bit snappier in my conversation with the mechanic. He's doing his best. He's not always perfect in all the ways that he's communicating. And I get there. No, actually, we don't get there on Saturday. The last minute, I call just to make sure we're in the metro station, ready to go up to pick the car up. And I realized the guy has gone home and the car is not actually ready. It's going to be ready on Monday. We're about to pull out our hair and raise a ruckus and all of that. Eventually we get the car. It is fixed. We did pay the price for it. But the great lesson for me was, I'm not so good at waiting. Are you? (laughs) I used to think I was a pretty patient person. I realized I'm only patient when it doesn't require patience from me. You know, like, I'm pretty good at it when it's really not that hard. And even then, I'm not that good at it. Whether if it's waiting for a checkout line at the giant around the corner, complaining about the line to friends, or maybe waiting for a bus and noticing that it's not on time. Small ways, big ways, the challenge of waiting. Friends, Abram has been waiting. The clock has been ticking on God's promise offered to him Several months prior to this passage, maybe even a full year, God promised Abram that he's going to bless Abram in a way that he can't imagine. He's going to give him descendants. He's going to make Abram into a great nation. He's going to give him a promised land, a place where he can cultivate a life before God, not just himself, but in community. And now... Months later, maybe a year later, the promise is starting to feel no closer to fulfillment than when he first started, as we saw in chapter 12. Still no child, no descendants, and in fact his one relative, Lot, is actually just having a hard time staying out of trouble and almost getting them all killed. No ownership whatsoever of the promised land. 
which actually is still filled with hostile nations that are trying to attack and take over Abram's life. A promise seems as far away from fulfillment as ever, and waiting is starting to feel as hard as ever. Is it hard for you, waiting? Maybe it's waiting for God to answer a prayer that you've been praying for many months. Maybe it's been years. Or waiting for a season of hardship or pain or struggle to finally pass, please. Or maybe waiting for a spouse or a child or a job opportunity. I think this struggle with waiting is sometimes the cause for why we often are bitter and angry towards God. Or maybe distant, suspicious, not so sure He's on our side. Or maybe cynical, because you feel like you've waited long enough or waited too long, and God doesn't seem to have delivered. This passage talks to us about waiting. And this is what we're going to look at briefly here. First, a sketch of faithful waiting. What does it look like? And secondly, talk a little bit about our struggle with waiting as we see it in Abram's life. And finally, we'll talk about strength for waiting that God gives to us. So first, a sketch of waiting. What is it that we're talking about here? Waiting before God. First of all, it's a waiting that trusts God. You may not know that in the Bible, waiting is oftentimes synonymous with the language of hoping in God and trusting in God. You see, trust is not just an instantaneous thing that I either have or don't have. It's something that needs to persevere over time in relationship with God as he works out his purposes in real time. In verse 6, we see this language of Abraham believing the Lord or trusting the Lord. Passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 8 talk about a person waiting for the Lord. I will put my trust in him, defining it as trust. You see, waiting is not, as the Bible defines it, just procrastination or laziness. It's not passivity, nor is it sort of impatiently tapping your foot on the ground until God finally gives you what you want. Right? That's what I do. And I call it faithful waiting. I'm waiting on the Lord. No, I'm just sitting there saying, all right, hurry up, hurry up. Already? Is that your spirit? Eugene Peterson, a great teacher and author, he helpfully describes waiting as poised submissiveness. Poised submissiveness, a a not doing that leaves adequate space and time for God to act and to work. You see, it's not passive, it's an active trust. It's secure in God because of your knowledge of His character. You know He's good, you know He's for you, He's no, you know He's acting on your behalf. But there is a submissive posture, a humility that says, God, you are at work whether I can see it or not. And God, you are God and you know better than I know whether I believe you or not. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. 
Biblical waiting is a waiting that trusts. It's also a waiting that seeks after God. Abram brings his waiting and his frustrations with waiting to God. You notice the passage opens up with this great dialogue and interchange between a doubting Abram and a reassuring God. Abram feels very free to share his questions, lay out his concerns with God. He's bringing them before God. True waiting doesn't just bottle up your concerns, especially when you're frustrated. Are you frustrated today that you're having to wait? Have you brought that before God lately? Here's the story of grace. God doesn't turn Abram away. He doesn't say, come on, you ought to do better than this. How can you question me? You're childless. How dare you raise that question? You're landless. How dare you question my authority? No, God graciously, generously gives Abram the reassurances that he needs. Come on out here, Abram. Look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? Neither will you be able to count the number of descendants that you one day will have. A God that is so gracious and so patient with us. If we would just go to him. There is a difference between just waiting for results. Will God hurry up and do this already? And waiting on God. What is that area in your life where you feel like you are just sitting and not receiving as you hoped you might? Are you actually Actively pursuing God in this, engaging Him in His character, talking to Him about it in prayer, maybe even complaining. Can we use that word the way that Abram says, what's going on? The passage gives us permission to bring that honesty before God and say, God, what is going on? I've been waiting. And God just might surprise you. By engaging you and responding and giving you comfort that you need. It's a waiting that trusts. It's a waiting that seeks God. It's a waiting that enlarges us. In another book, Eugene Peterson reminds us that waiting actually deepens our grasp of God. Actually enlarges our soul. He writes this, waiting does not diminish us. You know when you're sitting there waiting on God or waiting for something to happen, sometimes you just feel like you're shriveling as a person? I'm just, I'm, I'm less than what I ought to be. I'm less than what I used to be because of all of this waiting. No, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother, Peterson says. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging in us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Great little image metaphor that he gives us. You know, we understand intuitively that when children have a hard time waiting, when they don't yet know how to live patiently, well, we understand that it has to do with maturity, That there's something about understanding that there is more going on in life than you can see, my child. And there are issues in life that make the delivery of your promise milk, or food, or birthday cake, or Disneyland. 
There are complexities of life that you don't understand, but you need to trust me as your parent. That over time, as a child or an adult learns to wait, they actually are expanding as a person, a greater capacity to understand who God is and what He's up to in the world. It's no different in our spiritual lives. Waiting actually enlarges us. Lamentations chapter 3 says this and gives us a similar sort of thought. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him. To the one who seeks Him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait. It is good for our souls. But we hate it. (laughs) Right? We can't stand it. We can't stand it. We have not only a sketch of faithful waiting here, but let's talk about our struggle with waiting. What makes waiting so hard? First of all, our society is making it harder and harder for us to wait patiently because we live in a culture of instant gratification and feedback, don't we? Whether if it's the quickness and speed with which we can communicate with people, right? You send out email communication or a text message and how much we now expect immediate feedback, immediate responses, or even waiting for a metro train. You're standing in the subway station, the metro station, and we have this wonderful screen that helps us out because we need it so badly. Arriving in seven minutes. Six minutes, three minutes, two minutes, and then that great, great three-lettered symbol, A-R-R. We're on our way. We're going. We're ready to go. We can't even wait for a couple of minutes without tapping our feet. Or when we're on the train or on the bus, we can't bear just to sit patiently to arrive at our destination. We have to distract ourselves during our waiting. It's the only way we can cope. So we turn to our phones or we turn to different things to get our mind off of our waiting. Everything's getting faster. And it's not just that we want things to happen now. We, now, we, now we expect things to happen now. The point is not just to bash on modern life or technology or anything like that. It is what it is. But the point is that there is very little in modern life that will help cultivate in you patient waiting. There's very little in our culture that will help us in this regard unless we are deliberately and especially in community helping each other to cultivate this discipline and this hope of patient waiting. We have external pressures in society, but internally as well. This is what makes it hard for us. When we're waiting, oftentimes it's not just impatience that we're battling. It's fear. It's doubts. Abram's scared. This is the way the passage opens up. He's probably afraid of retaliation of the kings that he just defeated. We looked at that in last week's message, Genesis chapter 14. God offers Abram comfort in verse 1. Do not be what? Afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. 
And then you hear Abram in his exchange with God expressing numerous doubts and uncertainties. In verse 2, What can you give me, God, since I remain childless? You've given me no children. Verse 8, How can I know that I will gain possession of it? Gain possession of the land. Fears, doubts, the what-ifs, and the oh-nos that start to plague our waiting. What is it for you as you're sitting in the waiting room, the thoughts that start to descend upon you? What if God doesn't come through? What if I've been wasting my time? What if I miss out on other opportunities or other people? I don't know if I can last much longer. How come others are doing fine? Am I doing something wrong? Is there anything I can do to screw up God's purposes for me? Is there something I'm doing wrong? Does God really love me? Is God really good? Is He really committed to my well-being? How far will He go to fulfill His promise of blessing in my life? What are the fears and the doubts that start to creep in and make this waiting thing even harder for you? And this is where God comes in so kindly, so helpfully, to give strength for waiting. So thirdly, our strength for waiting. It's an amazing scene that we have. Verse 9 and following, after Abram has said, how can you assure me, God? What are you going to tell me? How can I know that I will, in fact, gain possession of all that you said you would bless me with? How will I know? I'm fearful. I'm doubtful. I'm getting tired of waiting. Here's God's response, verse 9. Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. And then almost without any further instructions, Abram cuts the animals in two pieces and arranges the halves opposite each other so as to create a little pathway straight across the land in front of him. You see, Abram immediately knows what God is going to do because what God called him to do was so common in the ancient Near East. It's done all the time in Abram's day between nations and between individuals. Treaties that are formed, covenants that are made between kings and servants. God was about to make a covenant with Abram. A covenant, a a solemn contract, a binding agreement. And what God has asked Abram to do and what was often done in those days in the making of this kind of binding agreement is acting out in sort of dramatic fashion the penalty for violating the covenant. The punishment for breaking the agreement. In other words, you lay out these animal halves that have been viciously torn in two and placed along the road in front of you. You then ritually identify yourselves with the animals and you say, if I fail to fulfill all the terms of this agreement, this covenant, may I be cut to pieces just like these animals have been cut to pieces. 
If I'm not able to fulfill the terms of the covenant, may I be torn in two. That's why we see in places like Jeremiah 34, when God talks about the violation of his covenant by people in Israel, he says, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will... Listen, treat like the calf they cut into and then walked between its pieces. You see, this is why the normal Hebrew expression for making a covenant was actually literally cut a covenant. In verse 18, when it says here, the Lord made a covenant, it's not made literally, it's the Lord cut a covenant. The normal expression for this kind of obligated relationship in binding agreement that would be made. You see, Abram says, God, how am I going to know? You've given me a verbal promise. You said you will be for me. You said you will bless me. You said, though I'm a sinner and an idolater, you will love me. You will have compassion for me and not only for me, but all my descendants. And you will give me a child and you will create out of me descendants. And you will give me a land and a home and a place, the promised land. How will I know? God says, let me up the visibility of my commitment to you and let me put it to you in writing now. Not just verbally, but let me put it to you and say it again to you and seal my commitment to you through a covenant. And here's the amazing part of what we find in this passage. I don't know if you recognized it and noticed it. You see, in the ancient Near East, historically, sometimes kings and servants would walk through these pieces and therefore obligate themselves to this agreement. But usually, only the servant was asked to walk through it so that the one that had less power would be obligated, but the king would be set free from really having to take on responsibility for the agreement. Who walked through the pieces? Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Smoke and clouds and a fire pot, a blazing torch, all key words that are used all throughout the story of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that the Hebrew tradition calls the Torah. Everywhere those words refer to the presence of God. And this is what Abram sees before himself. The God of the universe taking it upon himself to fulfill the terms of the covenant and to take upon himself all punishments and penalties for breaking the terms of the covenant. The smoking fire pot and the torch, the blazing torch passing through these torn to pieces animals cut in half. God here saying to Abram, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, I'll take the penalty. But notice, God was the only one who walked through the pieces, not Abram. And so, if you don't hold up your end of the deal, I will take the penalty 
I will be cut in half if I fail. I will be cut in half if you fail. And this, my friends, is the story of the good news of the gospel. The story of a God who obligates himself to do all that we were called to do but could not do in living a perfect life of love and justice and care for God and neighbor and could not do. Here is a God who says, I will fulfill all the terms and I will take all the penalties and punishments that you deserve. And this is the terms of our relationship. And do you see, friends, how this sets apart the Christian gospel from all other religions and from misguided understandings of the Christian faith as well? Every other religion apart from the gospel, makes you, makes me pass through the pieces. And says, it is all up to you to earn your favor with God, to take the hit if you screw up with God, to base your relationship with God on how well you do on any given day in any given life. Whether or not you get blessings from God or whether or not you avoid curses from God, it's up to you. And here's a different story. Here is a completely different story. The story of grace. The story of a God who says, no, it is up to me. Abram is a flawed, flawed, flawed sinner. We have seen stories and episodes of this already in the last couple of chapters. And yet we have this amazing declaration here in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abram simply trusted God. And on the basis of that trust, God says, I will treat you as if you had walked through the pieces yourself and fulfilled all the terms of the covenant perfectly, even though you never did. And this is how God relates to us in Jesus. That 2,000 years later on the cross, Jesus walks through those pieces in our place. Where Jesus himself says, I will fulfill the terms of the deal so that even though you're not righteous, living a perfect life of love, a perfect life of fairness, a perfect life of justice, a perfect life of just basic kindness, whatever is most important to you that you think is a true life before God and that you don't live, Jesus says, I will live that for you and God will treat you with all the favor and blessing and honor and love and acceptance that I deserve. And give to you. And all the punishment 
and disfavor and wrath and condemnation that you actually do deserve, I will take upon myself because I am walking through those pieces and taking on me the hell of God's wrath. That is what happened on the cross. This is the basis of God's kindness and love for us that it is anchored, friends, not on us and our performance, but on Jesus's. And what that means is that there is nothing that we can do that will make God love us more, so perfect is His love for us already. And there's also then nothing you can fail to do that will make God love and accept you any less. Because His blessing upon your life is not anchored in you. It's anchored in the One who walked through the pieces for you. Namely, Jesus. And so we wait. And you say, but God didn't tell him when. Or God didn't deliver immediately and say, okay, the waiting is over and here you go, Abram. And you say, but when? And you feel the frustration and you feel the weariness or you feel the fears and doubts that we talked about before. And we say to God, when? But do you notice he answers us with a who? You don't know when, but you have me. You don't know how it'll all work out, and you will continue to wait, perhaps. But one thing you don't have to worry about are those questions that maybe you had on your mind before. Is this all on me? Am I doing something wrong? The answer is no. It's on me. I'm the security and the anchor that you need in your waiting period. Or those questions like, is there anything I can do to screw up God's purposes for me? Here's God's answer, no. Do you really, really love me, God? His answer is a resounding yes. Are you really committed to my well-being? And his answer is yes. I walk through the pieces. And how far will you go to fulfill your promise of blessing on my life as I wait for it? I think you're saying it'll surely come, but how far will you go to secure a blessed life for me? So far, this God says, so far that one day I will come. And not just as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, but as a human being, I will come and I will walk through those pieces, not just symbolically, but in reality. And it's not just animals that will be cut in two, but it will be my own son, myself, not just physically torn to shreds, but spiritually 
torn to pieces, the suffering of his soul, the wrath of God. Hear my love for you, my commitment to you in your waiting. Do not fear. Do not wonder. I am with you and I love you. Can this start to quiet our restless uncertainties in our seasons of waiting? Do you see what God gives us here is not always the answer that we want, but it most certainly is the answer that we truly need. And so he calls us to wait, but he gives us what we need to wait. Our God a covenant-making God, a covenant-cutting God. Grace for our waiting. Let's pray.